welcome to episode 12 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. We're going to this week. We didn't sort of talk too much about games themselves uh, on our on our podcast earlier this week, but uh, today we wanted to touch on some of the games that have been happening, some of the big news stories that are coming out of the NBA, and we're also going to go back to our Aussies in the NBA segment as well. Um, turning back to the NBA, though, and uh, I saw a game today, Denver and, and Houston. I don't want to get too far down, down into that game, but the result was interesting in that Denver lost uh, by a point, really close game, uh, very high-scoring game, and then that made them, I think they're only, they are, they're only now a half a game ahead of Portland for the eight seed. And Portland's a team that's caught my eye, really, lately. Uh, part of the reason being, of course, the trade that those two teams made between Nurkic and the first round pick for Mason Plumley, and Mason Plumley's actually playing okay. Like he's putting up, I'm sure Nuggets are quite okay with the numbers he's putting up. But they probably are wondering where the Nurkic that's playing in Portland was uh, when he was in Denver. Now, whether it's just a matter of he's a better fit now that he's in Portland and they're playing a style that sort of fits his game a little bit better, um, I'm not sure, but. He's certainly been a far different player uh, in Portland than what he what he is in Denver. So how do you see that showing? And I, I sort of feel like Portland and their favourites to sneak into that eight seed uh, in the Western Conference and and looking good. And and you know I, I don't think they're going to push the Warriors too hard, but uh, they could be some entertaining games in the first round at least. Yeah, I've watched some Portland um, this last last week as well. S- same, they look good. It's what you know. Dame went crazy a couple nights ago. Didn't he go off for 49 yeah, or 49 something a couple nights? Against yeah, Miami, it's... in Miami. And, uh, yeah, Miami with our damn waiters. They just had no answer. Absolutely no yeah, answer. Yeah, look, I think – so But so he's he's kind of exploded, which is great because there was a period there here in February, March where um, whether this was infiltrating anything into the, into the locker room or this is just chatter for – people like us in the Twitterverse, but this, you know, this conversation that started wherever it started that, you know, is CJ McCollum the better player? I think it probably started around the trade deadline, you know, mid February. Um, and McCollum just more, he is more consistently getting his, you know, getting his points overnight where Dame would kind of disappear or defer a little bit more often. So it was nice to see Dame, Dame explode. And, and yeah, so I saw the, um, uh, I saw Portland battle San Antonio and the game that you and I, of course, I was, <clears throat> I had a cheeky, I got a cheeky 20 on Ladbrokes <laughs> on Portland. I just, I had a hunch about that game and the odds were, I think they were paying me like six to one or something, something crazy. It was at, at San Antonio, five well, ninety or something. Getting, getting belted by the Pelicans. That's it. Like 40 points or something. Not they got bombed by the Pels and it was the second night of a back to back. And so the, the odds were just shocking, but I go, you know what? That's a sort of game I just sort of felt. Dame's like, fuck this. I'm not going to be embarrassed two nights in a row. And in fact, they held on. And that's when I, I really got a, my first genuine 48 minute look at Nurkic. Um, I think he played what he played 35 or 36 minutes, didn't he, Daz? He played big minutes and that night. Yeah, big minutes. And what I saw was this beautiful footwork, soft, soft hands. The guy catches everything. He's got this beautiful touch around the rim. And, 
he's not a finisher, right? He's he's not really, and perhaps some of that was fatigue late in the game where I was kind of yeah. You didn't see his best shouting. work. You didn't see some no. of his best work. I know when you sort of tuned into the game, but. He uh, Lillard went off for 16 in that game in the third quarter, and then he went off for 14 in the fourth quarter, uh, and and they just the Spurs had no answer in the pick and roll. To, and that's to what I that's exactly they just ran the the pick and roll every time, and that was kind of neat about um, what I saw with Nurkic is he was gassed, he was gassed, and he couldn't jump over a paperclip, you know, lying down, and um, um, but he kept rolling him back out there, and they kept running PNR and he kept catching these really tough. That's what I really like. These little things. I, I get sort of geeked up about these really tough pocket passes. You know, Dame's kind of threading the needle and these kind of sometimes a really high bounce pass that would kind of Dame would almost like bring the pass over his head and spike it off the, you know, off the, um, off the floor to get it over the defender's arms and Nurkic should catch it in almost one motion up above his head and kind of lay it towards the rim and he's either getting fouled or, or finishing. So I saw these really, I don't know. I, I don't want to overuse the word, but almost this poetic sort of movements of the, of the guys. You, you see, you see something there. Now, if that guy gets his fitness in place, you know, in the off season, that could be a really, really underrated addition. So he gives them what what Mason doesn't. Mason's more of that raw rim runner, more athletic, right? You know, he'll get up and flush it and maybe attack the boards more. But he didn't have this beautiful kind of body positioning and movement that I saw from Well, I think the thing with Nurkic is maybe he's a bit of a poor man's Jokic. And that's where the fit wasn't quite there. I wonder, yeah. That are similar. Whereas uh, Plumlee's more of a, a better compliment um, coming off the bench in Denver yeah. uh, for them. And of course, you know, net, but they're in an interesting spot, Portland, because they've obviously got that first round pick. That'll be probably, I think it's Memphis's pick uh, next year. So that will be mid 20s, what, early 20s, around that sort of range at this stage. That's a nice pick in this draft. It's a loaded draft. Uh, I don't think they're going to be. Um, Complain about it, that's for sure. They've got three picks actually, so they'll have their own, yep. um, which will be depending, right? Be 12 to 16 if they finish in or out of the playoffs. And they've got Memphis's pick, you're exactly right. But they also have Cleveland's pick. Well, what trade is that from? That is from the. Because um, I thought Atlanta had Cleveland's pick from the call. Remember, no, remember Cleveland did this so they could do one of the trades in the offseason. They got this pick. They trade their 17 pick to get their, 200, their 2018 pick back from Portland. So they've swapped years with Portland. Oh, okay. Because remember, Cleveland was doing the – what deal did they do? The Corver trade. They did this to make the Corver trade happen. So Atlanta so must have their first round pick next year. The, the 2019, they yeah. Yeah, 18. That's right, yeah. So, Port- right. so Portland has three first-rounders this year, which is interesting. So at the moment, it's um, on just Tankathon. They'd have 12, 21 from Memphis, and then 27 from Cleveland. So interesting. And this is obviously one of the deepest drafts that we can remember. Um, interesting times for Portland. Now that Portland's – they're in a tricky spot because they've made so many long-term commitments – and that's where they've got to find a way to get unconstipated from 
from Evan Turner, um, also known as Alan Wiggins, um, <laughs> <laughs> and and Crab. They got all the Plumley and um, who else did they lock up? Uh, Alan, oh, sorry, Mo Harkless, I believe. Harkless as well. Who was the, one of their, they, they signed him a couple of years ago. They, so they've got they've got a shitload of money committed next year. Almost no cap flexibility. So I don't know how they're going to have space. First of all, they're going to have space for three first rounders, or more to the point, how do they make the space so they can keep three first rounders, i.e., you know, three rookie contracts on the books? Well, so there may be a draft and stash uh, prospect there. That or a stash. Have. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, think- so, but back. Back to reality, though, I saw. Um, so I've saw, I've seen them play. Um, I didn't watch the Miami game where they they thumped Miami without. Um, it's embarrassing that where the world has come to. Without okay. Dion Waiters, we go. Oh my God! When a team is missing Dion Waiters, and that's a legitimate concern. That's how far Dion Waiters comes. So I didn't see him beat him, but I saw them whoop um, whoop Atlanta in Atlanta, and that's the other team I watched a couple times this week, and. Um, uh, Atlanta's in trouble, you know, not not in the way that Golden State like they were in trouble when they lost five out of ten. But <laughs> no, you know, you had Atlanta. Have you have seen Atlanta at all? Round. No, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't watch depressing basketball. And you don't want, yeah. And I love buds. I love Coach Buds. But as soon as they signed Dwight Howard, I just thought that's it. And and I think Bill Simmons made a great point last week when he was on he was on Zach Lowe's podcast, and he said he couldn't understand as soon as the cap went up there was this rush to just sign players just because you could sign players. And you, oh, I've got this cap room. We've got to, we've got to use it. And I think three teams were stood out to me that did that. It was Orlando, Atlanta, and Portland. Now, Portland locked yep. up their current core using that cap space. Uh, Atlanta went out and signed Dwight Howard. For what reason, I don't know. I, I'm sure they probably look back now and think, why did we do that? Um, and Orlando, of course had already traded for Barker and then went and signed Bismarck Biombo um, as well. And it's just like, you look at it and think, are they just signing these guys because they're there and they've got the money to spend? Like how, and, I, and Atlanta's I, been, sorry to interrupt you, but Atlanta's okay. been such a stickler for we need the right type of player in our system. Like they're a system team. So they've been really heavy on that. And then you go out and so on to Dwight. And then to, to Dwight's credit, he actually hasn't played badly this year. It's not his fault. It's not like he's he's played terrible. It's not like what Melo's doing it in New York, for example. But he's just not a good fit for what they're trying to do or what they've been trying to do. Yeah, no, sorry, I, I was interrupting you. So um, the other this the other team that jumped out for me was the, was the Lakers who go and blow their – can we just make sure we make fun of the it's Lakers not, at least no. once every pod? No, no we're not we're tired of it. They're not even an NBA team. This is an NBA no, podcast, but, and then okay. an NBA team. Well, Orlando makes me even more angry in many ways. If I stop to think about how they've um, how they've turned Dwight Howard and a bunch of lottery picks into Evan Fournier, Alfred Payton, and whatever the other whatever, you know. Well, Tobias Harris um, did look good for a bit. Hazonia. Yeah, dumped Harris for – I can't talk about Orlando. Can't do it. It gets me mad. And then dumping Ibaka and then dumping – just asset destruction trades after one after another. But Atlanta – so I saw Atlanta this um, this week, and I was trying to get my my head around what's a 4-5 matchup going to look like. And I, I know all of the behavioral stuff, the cultural stuff, 
the energy, the, the relationships, the trust, the issues that Dwight brings with him. But what I saw is he's the least of their problems on the court. He's doing Dwight things. He's averaging 14 and 13. He's got the highest PER on the team. He's crashing the boards effectively like he always does, four rebounds, four, four offensive boards a game. So he's creating opportunities. Um, he's still blocking shots, right? So I go, Dwight's still Dwight in, you know, in the reduced form, the 30-some-year-old form. And is a there's just not a commitment to the pick and roll with him, right? There's he just sort of his minutes are down, which is okay, right? He's he's getting up there in age, you know. His minutes are I guess 28 or 29 a game, but there's just not a commitment with him. So he does tend to just float. So they don't stick with the pick and roll, and to their credit, they don't dump it into him in the you know back to the basket. They they just don't which is smart, right? That's not, that's not winning basketball. I don't know what his points per possession in the post would be, but I can imagine it's, it I don't know. Be, it wouldn't be high efficiency now. It'd be like Drummond shooting free throws, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, but I thought he was the least of their problems. And I'm kind of coming around to where um, he's been such a, a delightful <laughs> fantasy point guard for me with Schroeder. Um, I'm starting to wonder about Schroeder. I wonder if they've they've bitten off more they can chew, turning the keys over to to a guy who just plays so loose and so aggressive. I thought, oh gosh, he's he's actually Reggie Jackson South. Yeah, he is. Where, Look, he's then. I'm not wondering about Truder anymore. I've, my mind's made up. The the when you say there's no commitment to the pick and roll, you can't commit to anything when he's on the floor because you don't know what he's going to do, and I don't think well, he knows it. what he's going to do from play to play. So, and, and Reggie Jackson's certainly the comp I was thinking of, and I think Reggie's a, a, a superior player. And I'm no Reggie Jackson fan, as listeners of this podcast yeah. could attest to. But I've seen Schroeder a few times. And look, I think he was a good backup point guard behind Teague uh, for the last few years. And I understood why they moved on from Jeff Teague. He hasn't exactly lit up, lit it up in Indiana this year. But Schroeder's just not a starting point guard. No, he's not. He is a he is a physical specimen, right? He is fast and he is wiry, and he can get to where he goes. He just hasn't. You can tell he hasn't learned the game yet. And the worrying part is: does he have the temperament? Does he have the mindset to be coached and to get feedback? And I, this is where I start to go. um, I probably didn't study Schroeder hard enough in the off season, but you can see the, you know, the fragile, you know, beast that is. Dwight Howard with this um, a bit arrogant question marks of how coachable Schroeder is. You just see a, uh, a chemistry here that's, that's flawed. And so I, I start to wonder about Atlanta. There are now that Millsap is kind of dinged up, got a, maybe a knee, knee something. Baysmore's out for the next little while. Knee bruise as well, I think, or a, clavicle a couple of weird injuries nothing huge for these guys but any time that these guys miss you know kind of their glue guy pays more and uh i would say Millsap is easily their best player i think they're they're gonna sink and you know they're not gonna well, be a factor in the playoffs but i'm when your most I'm, important player is tim hardaway jr um because as he goes, generally those the Hawks go because he'll he'll burst out for a thirty point game. Yeah, and you think he's quite a nice little player, actually, isn't he? He's a great. He can. Oh, be. He's a nice he six be. man. Yeah, um, he's nice. Um, if you 
if he could play sixth man minutes, right? Um, I think yeah, there's asking a, a lot of them. He's yeah. like a Lou Williams type, really. I mean, yeah. that's the sort of role you want to give him. But he's yeah. he's really the difference some nights between them winning and losing, and that's that's yeah. not ideal. Um, yeah. For what you want, he's because some nights he's got it, some nights he doesn't. That's just um, the way it is. But I th- I, he's a free agent as well. Well, that's right. That's exactly where I was going. I go this in Millsap as well, right? Millsap and Hardaway, mm. arguably their two most important players are are free agents. And do you sign one? Do you sign both? Do you sign neither? If you sign neither, then you've basically got yourself a whatever a twenty five. 30 win team and I go and then there you are again how do you not re-sign one of them when you've just committed 75 million dollars to Dwight Howard and say what you will I bet Dwight Howard didn't come to Atlanta you know to win 36 games a year and so to to Dwight's defense I I kind of keep thinking maybe he just keeps putting himself in really shitty positions does Dwight just keep picking the wrong freaking teams and so that's maybe I want to give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt because he's the least of their problems on the floor. Honestly, he's the least of their problems. So it's a frustrating team because I'm not sure where they're going. I don't have a clear sense of what they're going to do in the offseason. And it can, you can probably tell that's going to start impacting the locker room and their commitment to each other. As, you know, Schroeder's having bitching matches on the floor and now guys are missing time and now they're in a losing streak. You just... And now, you know, dumping Corver, I go, what did dumping Corver get you? Like, how did that help? I just, I don't, I don't get it a little bit with them. So that's probably all that we probably need to talk about at Landon's. The I don't get it team. I feel a little bit bad for Dwight, but he's probably too stupid. He probably should have picked a different situation if it was a shorter deal. You know, couldn't you have just tried to win maybe, Dwight? Do you always have to take the money? So, well, I think the good news here is for the Toronto Raptors because if Kyle Lowry is just coming back um, just for the playoffs, that's a that's a cupcake first round for them. And I, and I don't think as bad as Atlanta's going, I don't think they're going to fall out of that five seed. So that's going to be your four five matchup, I would imagine. Um, yeah, in the Eastern Conference, and that is that's the easiest match. I mean. I'm no fan of Indiana. Indiana, Indiana, you Indiana could, could stealing yeah. a couple of games in, in the first round. I think Indiana are still what three, four games behind Atlanta. In no, the they're just one. They're only oh, one they back now. Yeah, Atlanta's lost four in a row, and they got a big game coming up tomorrow. So Atlanta's going to the the team we also can't help but, but avoid talking is Charlotte. Oh, sorry, this, they're at the Wizards. I lie. They're at the Wizards. Um, so big game, Wizards. Um, Wizards Hawks tomorrow. There was some controversy as well. I want to touch on a couple of controversial subjects, and it's really staying at the top of the league again. The first was the Warriors, and they've come out and since sort of denied some of the reports, but um, ESPN reported that they were uh, particularly upset at uh, OKC for not making a statement, sort of uh, denouncing some of the fan behaviour against Kevin Durant when they were last in the building. And it sort of, I guess, touches on a theme where the Warriors are always sort of feeling hard done by, always out there and and seemingly in the media complaining about different things. And we've we've touched on this before, you know, the the bitching about officials um, in the games and things like this is sort of... Uh, gets a, getting a bit tiresome, I think, this sort of um, woe is us mentality that, that the Warriors have. But what, what have you made 
um, of, of these latest reports about the Warriors? And is it wearing on your nerves as a fan? It is. Right. But I, so it is. And um, I've heard it. And I can see, you know, certainly like Draymond's influence. Um, he's often the first one to come out in the media to say something. But this last one with regards to KD's treatment in OKC, the criticism that was lodged was or allegedly come from the, the Warriors camp was that they should have done something to acknowledge Kevin or his time or have some sort of public address or something. This is what I've been seeing, right? Do something to acknowledge it, you know, in, and as a result of that, it would help sort of disarm an uncomfortable, awkward and, you know, in, in certain factions or sections of the arena, as it were, or around the, around pubs or on the sidelines, just kind of disarm the anxiety and, and frustration and a bit of the, the vitriol that was, um, you know, aimed at, at KD. So on, I can see that again, I, when I hear the bitching, I don't like it, but in this instance where I, I think this is, this is again, this is just a, I gotta say a savvy coach defending his guy. So I think the message is more about them defending their guy Right, but it comes off as this indignant. What right do you have to tell me how to run my fucking franchise? Right, so that it comes off as this entitled, indignant, whiny, up themselves, complaining, a bit needling, a bit petty, um, overreaching. Pick your word, sort of whinging. So that does it does it does grate me that they've got this attitude. It does. Um, And I probably have greater complaints about Golden State with this whinging about the schedule. We had a road trip and three nights and three games and four nights. Yeah, you're the only team in the league. You're right. You're the only one that plays 82 games. Like they do that sort of stuff. It actually grates me more than this, than the KD stuff. I think it was the, the KD stuff on top of the JaVale McGee stuff with TNT on top of the scheduling. Oh, the, Steve Kerr I forgot saying, about the oh, McGee stuff. Yeah, the McGee stuff. And then Steve Kerr saying, go back a- to last season and, oh, Steph's not getting MVP calls and things like this. So that that's sort of what it goes to. I think there, there's a there's a theme there um, with the Warriors where well, they're always feeling hard done by. No, that's good. You've just tricked – I forgot about the JaVale <laughs> McGee stuff, which is – I mean – are you a professional athlete earning millions of dollars a year on a 70 win team? Or are you just a, oh, I can't say it on harmony day. Are you just a bitch? I can say it. You thin skinned. So I'm a hundred percent on, on Shaq's hundred percent on Shaq's side on this one. Get, get the fuck over yourself. J apostrophe veil or J dot veil M dot G. I don't know how you say it. So the thin skin is what gets me about them. Um, God. I mean, in their defense, and I'll make a bit of a defense of of the Warriors here, that when they won the title, and I thought they were dominant, when they won their title two seasons ago, I thought it was as dominant a win 
as you can see. They won 67 games. They were relatively untroubled, I felt, in the playoffs. I mean, Cleveland were up 2-1, Memphis were up 2-1, but generally they, they were never in doubt, in my mind at least, of winning those series. And then they come out of the playoffs and there's just this lingering storylines of, oh, the Clippers saying, well, they didn't play us or the Spurs, so, you know, they got a lucky with the draw and, um, you know, Cleveland had Kevin Love and uh, Kyrie Irving out and there was a, straight away this sort of narrative was, oh, the right team didn't win and all and this, and I think that sort of leaked into them and then they, and then you, you still had people coming out. I mean, like Baron Davis came out midway through last year when they're going on this record run and saying, oh, the We Believe Warriors would have beaten these guys in a seven-game series. And it's like, you guys couldn't beat the fucking Utah Jazz who were swept by the San Antonio Spurs in that year and you're going to be the 73-win team. Like, you know, give me a break. So I think all that sort of noise has gotten to a point where the Warriors have just had enough and they're just now pushing back against almost anything. And and I think Steve Kerr thinks it's not a bad thing to build up this mentality anyway and build up a bit of a siege mentality within within the team, particularly get a guy like Draymond Green going and just say, look, it is, it's us against them. You know, and I mean, they come into this season after signing Durant and really they're in, in some ways, particularly in the media, they're in a no-win situation because they could go 80-2 and two and people would go, well, of course they're going to go 80-2. They've signed Kevin Durant. They're already 73-win team. Uh, they should win it and win it easy. So they were sort of on a hiding to nothing. So I think that's where that mentality comes from. And I think they've pushed the envelope a bit too far at times, um, without a doubt. And they sort of, there's this view, I think, that they're God's gift to the NBA and the NBA's doing well because of them. Uh, which is in part true. They've, they've certainly been very entertaining to watch, and Steph Curry's been a revelation. But uh, I think at other times they've possibly disrespected um, the rest of the league, which has gotten under people's skin um, a little bit. So I will defend the Warriors on that part. I think they're, they're right to feel a little bit aggrieved at the lack of respect that they received from a number of... Um, past NBA players and even present people like, you know, Doc Rivers coming out and saying, oh, well, they didn't play us or the Spurs. And it's like, who cares? Like, you know, I could sit there and tell you four or five games if the Spurs won and the Spurs with the two seed and then maybe the whole playoffs go differently that season. But, you know what, that's basketball. Like, you you end up with the seed you end up with and uh, if you're good enough to win it, you're going to win it. So uh, whether there's injuries or... You know, luck of the draw on the seedings or bounces of the ball or whatever. Um, you can't come down to that. So that, that's sort of the defence, I guess, that I would make uh, for the Warriors. And, and the larger point I wanted to make is, and this is something we spoke about before we came on air, it's something that's seeping into the NBA and it's really getting under my skin. Um, and I don't want to veer off the NBA, but it is very similar to sort of American politics, Australian politics, in that there's these plants now in the media that are just sprouting whatever certain people want them to sprout, if you, if you know what I mean, whether it's at the NBA official line, whether it's something LeBron and his quote-unquote posse are coming out with, whether it's something Phil Jackson wants pushed on um, the media because access is everything. So if you get frozen out from access to whether it's the New York Knicks, Cavs, LeBron's inner circle, whatever, um, occasionally they'll just feed people a story and say, we want this out there. 
you know, and I, I saw a classic example of it today um, when the Knicks were making a bit of a comeback against the Clippers in the game and getting killed. And um, people are saying, oh, well, they're running the triangle. They're finally running the triangle. And, oh, that was all heavy triangle that brought them back into the game. And I thought, what a load of absolute nonsense. There's no doubt in my mind that Phil Jackson's people or Phil Jackson himself is passing that on to journalists and then they're reporting that as though it's news within that game. And I think it's the same thing with LeBron. I mean, Golden State, the uproar when Golden State rested players against the Spurs compared to when Cleveland rested players. I mean, the way that was reported in the media, I thought was completely different from the fact that the Warriors players were all soft and the Cavs, oh, they, they needed the rest. And uh, I mean, I certainly didn't, didn't view it that way. But, and I, and I sort of feel, again, there's people, particularly when it comes to LeBron James, there's people that will push LeBron's line on things. And, and most of that is anti-Warriors sort of nonsense. And, and LeBron coming out just after the Warriors uh, rested the players and saying, look, I'm going to rest all I need when I retire. You know, a direct shot across the bow, I felt, of the Golden State Warriors and his typical sort of passive-aggressive style that he comes out with. Um, and then two days later, he's resting himself. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know you picked up on it as well, but it, it's something that's seeping more and more into NBA reporting, and it's 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 sort of getting on my my nerves a little bit, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> that's good. Look, um. I have a lot to say about this. You might want to grab a sandwich or <laughs> well, you know, a, a good hit, put it on mute, rant, and drop a deuce, you know. Um, so I've actually just scribbling down my thoughts. So I've got a lot to say. Um, and you can tell we didn't rehearse this beforehand. Um, I, first thing I'll say is you look at the Mona Lisa, right? And you go, it's just a portrait of some ugly broad lady. <laughs> Can you say broad? Shit. It is Harmony and Day. Geez. That's another faux pas on Harmony Day. <laughs> you, see, you see a portrait of this lovely female figure. And you go, it's just a portrait of a, a girl. And you go, oh, is that all it is? I could have done that. And I go, but you didn't. That's a little bit how I look at the the dialogue around the dubs when they won the title two years ago. I'm like, oh, well, they shot bazillion three-pointers and made them. Well, duh. Anyone can do that. They're they're soft and they just prance around and oh, that was the dialogue, wasn't it? It just sort of, it was. oh, that's all. they got this, oh, this little mincing boy with the fragile ankles and him and Clay, little prancy boys. I go, well, you didn't fucking do it. So, so part of me says it's more, I'm less defending the dubs and more attacking the, the cultural and the social media realm around the discussions we have about teams and or especially greatness. So number one, Mona Lisa was my point. It looks simple, but you didn't fucking paint it. Good luck. You try to make four and a three pointers a year. Then you think it's easy. You do it. Mm. Number two, um, we have, we always, always, we're in a culture where we bring down the winners, right? It's a, we're an attack culture. We're actually an attack species. Most of humanity, right? And our, our evolution is about 
finding problems and finding fault and, and attacking and criticizing. It's also safe and it's easy and there's trolls and there's Breitbart and there's fake news, right? So it's just easy to do. So I'm trying to be a bit of an empiricist where I say 67 win team in the NBA and going through their playoff schedule, that is grueling. There's, there's an absolutely, I can't make any want any excuse. You know, there wasn't some miracle onside kick in the, in the, in the golden state warriors trudging through four rounds of the playoffs, right? Unlike football, right? Bounce here, uh, a bounce there, often an NFL game in particular turns on one stupid, crazy play, right? Occasionally an NBA game, occasionally it will turn on one Timmy Duncan finger roll or one fucking Ray Allen miracle f- fading away, throw it up over your head, three-pointer. Occasionally a game will pl- will turn, but off for the most part it doesn't. For the most part, greatness wins in the NBA. So I I will criticize the critics of of the Warriors and what they've done. We just love to bring down greatness. Now, don't get me started on the categorical, undeniable, undeniable, uh, undeniable, mathematical, empirical, abject failures of the three franchises that are the Buffalo Bills, New York Jets, and Miami Dolphins, which enable teams like <laughs> New England to have home games in the playoffs every year. Uh, don't get, that's way on our podcast about that one. Another podcast. So, number number three. It's been barely what seven hundred days since the um, the Warriors won that title. I don't know how. It says a lot, doesn't it, Daz? About how quickly we take stuff for granted in our culture, or get so short sighted, or we're trying to look for the next. Oh, now we got to talk about fucking unicorns. Who's who's dubbed unicorns just because Giannis and Porzingis and Anthony Davis in the league? Like, I'm sorry. Those are really, really interesting, talented players. But the, there's a team who just won 73 games and a team who beat that team. That has to be the dialogue. So part of me with the, the bitching about um, Golden State is, have we taken their greatness for granted already? Now, I, I don't remember, right? I do remember. I remember because we didn't have social media that when Michael Jordan you know, was dominating the league, that was the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth conversation about the NBA. And you had to weave in what Malone and Stockton were doing because they were always right, happened to be second best for, for about five or six years. So I think we take for granted the greatness. So we get distracted or there's something else to talk about. So I too, I guess in a way, I'm defending them, but more, I guess, criticizing the critics, if you will. So what the... Back to your original point, though, about what they've been doing is I, I'm actually I'm kind of happy they've righted the ship. Um, if Kevin Durant isn't terribly hurt and if he does come back, and that's an if, isn't it? I'm oh, starting. I don't think so. Now I, I think he's on he's on the latest road road trip. Apparently, he'll so be back, right? Jumps. He'll be back. Yeah, he'll be back. He'll be back. Uh, it's a little if, but it sounds like he'll be back, right? Um, was sort of right the course and it look they were the darlings and they're a little bit easy to, to hate because of Draymond kicking people in the junk and Kevin Durant pulling a LeBron and you know I, I'm I'm actually starting to I wish Kevin would have stayed in OKC. I really do from a competitive standpoint. Can you imagine Daz 
this Western Conference if he'd stayed in OKC and they were also a, a 50-win team. So you have Houston, San Antonio, and Golden State all probably winning 60 games, but I digress. So I wished he would have stayed just from a competitive standpoint, but I don't begrudge him. How, how can you? And how can you begrudge Golden State, right? The guy, the guy, you know, they had a healthy salary cap and they, they signed a great player. So I'm just easy to hate. You know, the little small market was, you know, hard done by their superstar. So they've could have gone from the darlings to these villains, you know, so quickly. Um, and I start, and I think guy, someone like Draymond's going to actually help that, help make that fuel for them. He'll galvanize it. And to be honest, Kevin Durant himself's a bit salty. You know, he's not the nicest. He's not. He's been a bit of a bristly chap the last couple of years, hasn't he? He came into the league as this silent giant, right? This humble, you know, southerner who played in Texas and you know, just kind of a small town kid. And um, he's got a bit of an edge to him. So I'm, I'm thinking when I think about them battling the, uh, the, the Cavaliers again, I think the edge is going to help them. I think the 2014-15 mm. dubs and that attitude and style, this this free-flowing, you know, almost carefree, right, unconscious flow, the way they played, that's not going to serve them. That's what the, that's what got them smashed in the mouth last year, right, when, when the Cavs rolled off three in a row. I think this a bit of bristle, a bit of fight, a bit of angst, a bit of them versus us. I actually think that's going to help kind of galvanize the locker room. So um, that's that's all my thoughts on on the dubs. Now you also then mentioned it back to the your last point about I couldn't agree more with these. Oh my God, were they like android transplanted? NBA, you know, from the commissioner's office robots. They mm. named him, hi, I am Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> I want to say that the triangle offense is an effective way to score the basketball. I am seeing Carmelo Anthony. Like, I was just imagining, like, Siri reading out to me. I couldn't believe my ears what he was saying about the triangle. If people didn't hear it, and they you gave it a good summary, but he went on and on and on and then had Derek Fisher go on. And Derek Fisher, right, who got fucking shit-canned, thrown to the curb, right, like a used condom, you know, in New York as their head coach, is now saying, oh, yes, look at how great the triangle is. I go, who told you to say that? Whose words are those? Well, I actually read it on the ESPN. I read it on the ESPN Twitter feed. Um, one of the reporters for ESPN was was waxing lyrical about the triangle. So this was a this was a concerted effort from was. Phil Jackson and his people to say, start defending the triangle on my behalf. And obviously, there's a quid pro quo there to say if you do that you will get some access to more leaks when I want to throw Camelo under the bus next time. Um, and, and I think, and it's something that's happening in journalism across all, all spectrums, and it, it absolutely disgusts me um, 
probably more in, on the political well, spectrum than the, than yeah. the NBA spectrum. But it, even to, to see it seeping into the NBA, which we like to try and keep our sports a bit more pure than that, um, is quite frustrating. You've struck a nerve again, Daz, like you do. But, um, um, ESPN, I'm waiting for the day for Zach Lowe to quit. Then I will stop ESPN altogether. They are a PR machine, right? They can no longer be a news outlet when they have a broadcast rights and they're effectively the, the promotional engine for the league. So they're, they're an outlet. They are an extended marketing and branding arm of the NBA, right? So there's, there's no validity. There's no objectivity when ESPN, quote unquote, report something. So that's first, that's my first point. Um, I had a half an ear on the game while I was, I was riding away today. And I thought I heard Shaq talk about the triangle. So I perked up and I, and I caught this. And so I listened to it. So I, that was my extent of the, of the, my exposure to it and going, uh, I just, my, it just stunk. I go, what the heck is that? Then I go, that's Derek Fisher. Can you, the indignity does Derek Fisher need a paycheck so fucking bad? He now has to sit. Can you imagine Derek yeah. Fisher, who was brought in to run it, then not allowed to run it, and then fucking fired, and then brought someone in who didn't run it, and it was okay they didn't run it. Now he needs to run it. And now he has to sit there and watch and be fed his lines about reading it. So I thought, I go, you pathetic non-human, non-professional, get off the fucking sidelines, I get get off. You are marketing. You are not an analyst. You are not a broadcaster. You are marketing. And that's what I – I think fans, right, smart fans, we can sniff it, can't you? You'd know bullshit the instant you hear it and you go, that's bullshit. That is not – that is no longer a broadcast. This is – you might as well have, you know, Roger Goodell or it always seems like Roger Goodell, you know, and Adam Silver sort of, you know, just ape, you know, putting his his fist up your backside as a, you know, as a puppet with these words coming out. So that's my fundamental where I'm my my whinge is going to stop now is that have have we gotten to the point where the vested interests of the broadcasters are so tied to the league that we can't even we can't even have an objective dialogue during the game. That's what that's what that's what kills me. Well, I think I think it comes back to there, there's a, there's a view there that you get you will get more access to whether it's the Golden State Warriors, Cleveland Cavs, in the in the circles of the NBA, if you run this line or this talking point that we want to put out there. So if if it's LeBron shooting a something across the bow of the Warriors, if it's the Warriors airing some sort of grievance um, that they have. Um, you know, or, or whatever the team is and whatever the situation is. And that's, that's what's sort of – and I think it's right across the board in a lot of what the journalism I'm seeing. I, I guarantee you it's not happening at the vertical, for example, but it's certainly happening at, at ESPN, TNT, some of those bigger ones because obviously they've got broadcast rights as well. So um, it's in their interest, I guess, their commercial interest to try and keep that and, and – um, some of the journalistic integrity, um, or the little that they have, is going out the window. But anyway, we won't we won't spend any it more is. time on that. So we did want to talk about. I mean, I don't know if you want to keep it quick. 
And we will quickly talk about this issue of resting players. And Adam Silver's come out today. And so there is an issue within the NBA. Um, I guess two parts of this. A, do you think it's an issue, Darren? And B, what, what should or could be done about it? It is an issue for sure. Um, I am very much on the side of fans in this one. This is an entertainment business. And when I go to the movie theater, I don't see Harrison Ford dubbed out of right dubbed out of the movies or I don't see the leading actor at a, you know, the theater I go to, you know, if the stand in is there, um, I'm not happy about it. So the fans pay money to see their team play, right? But we're also beings. And when that's why if someone's hurt, if Giannis is injured and I'm living in Milwaukee, I'm going to think twice about going. I go, I, I find such joy from watching Giannis play and the possibilities of the amazing things he might do night to night is what brings me there or Thon maker or anyone's favorite players. Mm. So I am absolutely on the side of the fans. Um, when I think about, you know, um, dad and children there, when I think back to tree Rollins high-fiving me, you know, um, walking out of the tunnel in the Mecca in 1982, you know, that sort of stuff. And I go, that, that, imprints on you as a, as young fans in particular, what the experience is like. And if I go show up at the arena and I've got Joffrey Laverne and W dot Reed and I know Zuzic and Derek Williams throwing up 31 footers, that is, and I was not prepared for it. And my ticket was purchased beforehand. That is almost borderline consumer misrepresentation. That is, that is a killer. That is a killer for trust. And so something has to be done. Well, here's but what, also, um, just to yeah. interrupt you on this point. No, go Here's what yeah. Michael Jordan said. They, they, they asked him at the end of his career, they said, what, what was it that made you turn up and compete to the level you did every single game? And this was his response. Whether you believe it or not, I guess, is another, another point. But he said, every single game I played, he said, I knew that there was one person in that crowd and maybe it was a dad bringing his son to the game who the only reason he was coming there was to watch me play and he said and there was every chance that might be the only time they would ever see me play so he said that's why I would bring it every single night and there was never an never a thought that would have entered his mind and I'm not suggesting that these players are, are, are putting their hand up and saying we want time off either don't get me wrong on that but he would he would never have walked away from saying that, and I think that's what they've lost sight of, I guess, within the NBA. Because I think about it from my point of view, um, you know, if I if I was planning a trip over to the United States, I'd certainly try and take in a game of basketball. And you could imagine the disappointment if you're trying to watch your favourite team, the Spurs, play, and you turn up and Kawhi Leonard, Lamarcus Aldridge aren't playing. Um, on the night that you're there or whether you're a Golden State fan or Cavs fan or whatever, um, if, if the best players are resting on that particular night, that might be the only time, you know, potentially in your life that you go to an NBA game. Um, it's not it, just people uh, in Milwaukee. That, that it is. I'm, I am a violent advocate. It is, that is fraudulent misrepresentation of the product. I am buying an NBA ticket, not a fucking D-League ticket. I don't want to see you know, players four through 12 play. I want to see one through seven play, right? I, I, I do not want to pay money 
to see, in this case, Derek Williams, Richard Jefferson, um, and fill in the fucking blank. If I'm a Cleveland fan, it didn't happen in, in the road, but still, it's, there's, there's 10 players on, the, on, the, on a court. right? I would feel absolutely angrily cheated if that happened. But what's the So answer? I get it. You play unless you're hurt. Full stop. You have injury report like the NFL. You have injury report. You're injured, you're injured. And the injury report has to go through, you know, league um, you know, league medical clearance well, like the NFL. I think the problem with that is every, every player is carrying an injury at this point in the season. So it's, it's not hard to dodge that up um, and say, look, LeBron's got a knee issue or, you know, there's a shoulder problem with Kawhi or whatever it is. And it's probably not a lie to, to a certain extent because they, they are carrying injuries. Um, and... In fairness to the teams, they've got data there that's suggesting if we give players rest, it's going to be beneficial to us longer term. And I mean, they're into the try and win a championship. So I can see it from their point of view as well. Um, but there's obviously the one of the things that have been Well, you know, I, is... I just sort of, sorry, I go, I, I get that. But I go, if you want to rest, don't play the NBA. You see the schedule, you got your paycheck, you got your contract, it's 82 games. Well, is go, there I'm, too many games? Is, I mean, I'm, this is this is the, the no, no, the no, no. That not, that's not the com- no, 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 no. That's not the conversation. Look, I know I stopped playing competitive basketball a long time ago, but I go, but even back in fucking high school, I go, you know, Darren, can you make the commitment? Can you play the twenty-eight games? It's going to be a lot of travel, which is bus rides through the snow. You've got exams coming up. You've got pre-college testing. I go, that's a major commitment. I go, you know what? I do. Because every night you get in the locker room, you get into game. You know what that feels like, even on a micro, micro, micro scale. If you have a competitive bone in your body, when you're in the locker room, fuck it, you want to win. You're thinking about the opponent, thinking about your game, you're thinking about your gear. You get into game mode. You know what that's like, right? I go, if these guys can't get into game mode, I don't give a flying fart how much effing bleeping sleep data they have about rest then don't play. Then don't be in the league if you can't commit to an 82-game schedule. If you're hurt, you're hurt. If you're not, you're not. If you didn't have a good night's sleep, if you got a cough, if you – whatever, that is absolute bollocks. This, you need rest. Michael Jordan didn't need rest. Wilt didn't need rest. Bill Russell didn't need rest. They had long careers, right? And so I kind of go – you either play your NBA schedule or you don't play your NBA schedule. It's not there's not a gray area for me. You play it or you don't. Oh, so I'm I, I'm I violently think... on the side of of the fans and of the in the competitive integrity of the game. I think I violently. see both sides of it. I mean, when when the when the clubs have got when the teams have got information there that's saying if you rest players. One every you know, on back to backs or whatever it might be, you know, in certain hard parts of the schedule, you're going to lessen injury risk by X percent. You're going to increase their performance in the following game by X percent. I mean, they're breaking it down. This is they're not just doing this on a whim. Um, so I sort of get it from their point of view as to why they do it. Um, and I don't know that there's an easy answer. I don't I think it's as simple as saying you have to play 82 games or you play it until you're injured because I think there'll be ways around that. Um, and whether they look at 
Um, and, and I think there, there are ways to reduce the schedule um, or, or look at the schedule burden on teams and just work with them to say we don't want to see um, players, mass players, um, rested. And, and, and you can be rest assured that Adam Silver's working right now on ways to avoid this in future. Um, that he's going to be uh, beneficial to the fans and I've, beneficial to, I'm, to players and the teams. Yeah, look, I, I know that there's data. I go, but did, did Zach Levine, what did they to say about Zach Levine or Jabari Parker or about, I go, give me an effing break. Predicting an injury? Can you? Oh, oh they're going to predict now when I step on someone's foot. Is that what you're <laughs> no, telling well, me? Well, I'm only going by what Doc Rivers said. Doc Rivers I know said what, he was dead well, against you're representing, it. You're representing evil then, Daz, and you don't well, want to be on the wrong wrong Doc, side of history. Doc here. Rivers was, was dead against resting players, and he said uh, they showed him the data, and they said this is, you know, this is the risk that you're taking by playing these guys on certain parts of the schedule on back-to-backs. Um, and he said, look, these guys, I believe what they're showing me um, <clears throat> on this. And, and as I said, whether it's recovery times um, and, and lessening risk of soft tissue injuries and things like that. So it's not necessarily, you know, broken ankles and things like that. It's more those sort of soft tissue injuries that can come from reported work. So, look, I'm not an expert in the field, but I'm just saying that's what the teams are reporting back. Um, the Spurs have obviously been one of the number one teams to do it for years. So I've I've seen it many, many times over the years. Um, and so I'm here's not my, sure if there's a simple answer. Here's my it. commitment. What I will do is I know exactly where this comes from. This is, this is fucking MIT Sloan Analytics Conference. There's a paper. I'll find the paper. It was like something about preventing... Preventing injuries, right, for NBA players. There was a paper presented. I don't remember by whom, but I, I remember this was a dialogue. So I'll commit to reading this paper and the data. So when I, I stop having examples of John Stockton and Carl Malone and Charles Barkley and insert NBA Hall of Famer here who played 80 games every season, right? If you get the flu, don't play, right? You get a horrible cold and you can't breathe because there's so much snot coming out of your head, you can't, you don't play, right? But this rest, I need to rest. You make 30 fucking million dollars to not rest, right? I go, I'm sorry, rest? Yeah, but I, sorry, I, don't, I think you're getting it wrong. Coal mine. Yeah, but so, it's not the players putting their hand up. I mean, LeBron, I'm not They LeBron should put their hand up. LeBron's not I'm putting sure. his hand up and saying, oh, I want to rest. Because he's an effing coward, because he um, should put his hand up and say, I want to play. That's oh, my well, point. The, the story that came out, and whether this is another LeBron Plant story, it was a, that he wanted to play. I mean, what I thought was weak from the Cavs is that they sat the players against the Clippers and then played them against the Lakers. I mean, that's one of the most um, you know, weakest things that I've seen, just a lack of competitive pride within the squad of your team in, in, or within the fabric of your team, as far as I'm concerned. If you're a championship I, team that's, and you that's don't even want to turn up to play one of the sort of quasi-contenders, yet you want to go out there and boot up. And I mean, they beat them by five points, so well done um, over the Lakers. Um, that was a bit, you know, I thought that was a bit wrong. So, look, I... But I think the players are getting bashed on this, and I think a little bit unfairly because I don't think any of the players, I mean, even the Warriors players, they weren't sitting there going, "Oh, we want to, we want to rest here." But if Steve oh, Kerr comes to them and says, "You're going to rest," 
um, we're not playing you tonight, uh, they're not going to um, they're not going to question that. Look, I've no doubt that this is coming from you know one of the high school virgins with this report, you know, in the front office. I don't doubt that. But if you're going to tell me, so I just I'm calling baloney on this. So they stop using 1960s language baloney. I'm going to call hogwash on this desk. <laughs> like if LeBron says I'm playing, I'm playing. He's not going to play. Oh, you don't think LeBron he might be a different story, but I, I don't know that. Uh, Chris Paul doesn't have the power to do that. I don't think I Chris did. Paul. No, I, I don't think Chris Paul yeah, has the power but, to do that. Yeah, but Doc Rivers runs that franchise. Um, no. Well, what about Tim Duncan? I mean, does Tim Duncan play these 39 if they don't manage his minutes and manage these performances and give him those rest nights? I think there's an argument that he doesn't. It's a it's a thought piece. You can't control for all the variables and try to you know re- put regression analysis to his the 8 million factors that would go into a how a human being did or didn't play. You, you, it's, a, it's a thought piece. It's, well, here's it's my not... thought piece. If Greg Popovich does something, it's going to generally be right. And I'll be on, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on Pop's side and you Good. can be on Charles Barkley's side. Well, we're going to argue religion then, <laughs> right? So yeah, well, I'm just saying, you've got Charles Barkley and I've got 82, Greg Popovich. 82, 81, 80, 80. So up until before he was an old man, even when he was old, he was playing seventy-eight games a yeah, and he broke year. down. He broke down. If he maybe if yeah, he played at 60, age thirty, when he went to the Rockets, he might have been able to contribute something. He would have won a title. Who knows? I'm talking Timmy Duncan here, mate. Oh, Timmy, he I played, saw you talking about Barkley. I'm still, no, Timmy Duncan played seventy-six games as a thirty-four-year-old, right? I go, mm. okay, you're thirty-four. I know what that feels like. Your knees start to hurt. So I go, you know what? You're an old player. It hurt. Recovery sucks. That's a, f- but you don't play if it's going to affect your performance. That's the fucking point. If you're tired, or the the MIT Sloan data says if I don't play today, <laughs> I'll be better four years from now. Oh, fuck. Is that, is that fuck how they talk you. with MIT? <laughs> you're such. Sorry, I'm probably waking my whole household here. That is the most giant crock of shit. Now, I am full-blown Charles Barkley on this <laughs> bull shit. Again, you got the flu or strep or an infection or whatever. Agree, don't play. Who can play with gastro, right? That's not going to be very good. But you don't play – the decision to play or not play is based on can we win the game tonight, full stop. All right. Well, th- this is what we're going to do. Oh. So you go and research that MIT paper. I'm going to research the benefits of a 66-game schedule because I'm sick and tired of these March games, which are absolutely pathetic, and I would have much preferred it to end around now so we can get into the playoffs. Um, and, and we'll come back and report on it maybe in a couple of podcasts' time and we can, um, we can resolve this argument once and for all. But let's move on now. I want to move on to something. 66-game schedule? Sorry, just before – is this a is this a thing or is this just this a is, random no, number? No, no, this is a thing. This is, there's been research on 66-game schedule um, and how it can be done without affecting league revenue, um, obviously eliminating back-to-backs and things like that. So this, this, is, this is not just a thought bubble okay, right. from Darren Clear um, on the night. So I'll, I'll have a look into that. You have a look into MIT – um, we'll get Charles Barkley's opinion as well, and we'll see where we end up in a couple of weeks. So, um, 
I, I wanted to move on now to, and we're going over time again to the surprise of no one, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to move on to something we are going to agree on, and that's uh, recently Andrew Bogut broke his leg, of course, coming back for the Cavs or coming in for the Cavs after signing um, a short-term contract with them. Uh, at the end of the season, to me, that's probably the end of his career in terms of uh, being relevant on the basketball court. I'd be, I'd be shocked if he had another big moment again um, on on a basketball court from here. Uh, but and it's possibly a good time now, I guess, to look back on his career. Most people would look at uh, Berger's career, and, and I think they'll remember the time with the Warriors and obviously the title that he won there, being part of the '73 win team. But I look back on much more fondness with his time with the Milwaukee Bucks, um, being a number one pick there. And, of course, when he was the number one pick, they started showing Bucks games in Australia. I'm not sure if you were in Australia at that stage, Darren. Or yeah, not. for sure. Yeah. yeah, so they started showing some Bucks games, and that's where I sort of got into the Michael Red era of the Bucks. But what people probably don't remember about Bogus' career is the 2009-10 Bucks season, which was the fear of the deer. Bucks season where they went forty six and thirty six uh, and made the made the conference playoffs. I'm trying to see here what their what their rank was um, in terms of um, the conference. The fourteenth in the overall, and they lost in the first round four three to the Atlanta Hawks. I think they finished uh, in the fifth spe- fifth seed, and that was Bogus' best year. And there was real talk around the league that Bogut was on the up. I mean, he was about to enter his prime. He was, uh, I thought, in the conversation among the best centres in the Eastern Conference, at least. He played, used to play really well against Dwight Howard, um, who, of course, at that, that stage was the premier centre in the Eastern Conference playing for the Orlando Magic. And that season in particular, averaged, uh, I've got the numbers in front of me, averaged 16 points, 10 rebounds, 2.5 blocks a game was essentially the best player on a 46-win team, which is you know pretty um, pretty high praise and certainly the best an Australian player's ever done in the NBA. And then he had that horrific fall and, and broke his arm. And uh, like so many things, unfortunately, Milwaukee over the years in the NBA, it all sort of fell apart because they had a nice core around him. Brandon Jennings in his uh, rookie season averaged 15.5 a game. John Salmon's averaged around 20 points a game. Michael Red got injured again that season, but I guess there was some hope that he could still come back and be a player. Elias Sava was there. Um, not sure if that was his rookie season or his second season in the league, but um, there, was, there was just a nice team around. It felt like they were building something in Milwaukee, and then it all just fell apart so badly. But that, that's, I guess, my fondest memory, not the falling apart part of it, but just how well Bogut looked in that season. And I'll always sort of wonder what if... Uh, that injury hadn't happened, and then of course the subsequent injuries that he had after that. Um, just how good a player he could have been. I guess there's two parts to the question for you: is what what are your memories of that season, and what do you think Bogut's ceiling could have been had that injury have not impacted his career? So vivid, vivid memories. I was living here in Balmain. I'd been in Australia a few years, and still trying to get accustomed to watching my favorite sports, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, when the games tip off. And I, you know, I'd probably, you don't ever really get over, but I'd started to get over 
you know, the franchise being decimated with the Ray Allen trade. And I started to come to grips with the fact that um, when we finally won the ping pong ball and we drafted Bogut, a nice player, it was pretty clear by about the second year or so that that was a major mistake, that we missed out on on Darren Williams and Chris Paul, two phenomenal players. You know, Darren Williams probably flamed out a bit earlier with injury, but Chris Paul still one of the best in the game. So I'd gotten to that point by about 29, 2010, and I'm like, okay, that's very Bucks-like. You know, Bogut's okay. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a great teammate. Um, and so I kind of got to that, oh, here we are in the middle again. Um, and then they drafted Brandon Jennings. And the culture changed in an instant, Daz. So 29-2010 was also the year when it was Jennings, don't quote me, fifth professional game. 10th game of the year, something like that. He scored 55 points mm. in like his ninth game. And this was a, a six foot tall from New York City, right? Played overseas. He had an ego and a bravado and a mouth. And he was like, oh my God, this is the most anti Milwaukee Buck, Milwaukee Bucks player ever. And we loved it. We go finally. Finally, an NWA, someone with attitude on the floor, and he had a swagger, and he shot horrible percentage. But you know what? He shot 37% from three, and he could get it up, right? So he was well above league average and a high volume. So Jennings instantly brought bravado. But the team, but then Michael Red, so Jennings brought this bravado. But then Red, for the second time in his career, blew an ACL. So we thought the season was pretty much gutted. I don't know. He did that probably you know, it was before the All-Star break. He played 18 games. Yeah, it was it was pretty early in the year, right? So you're like, oh, okay, whatever. No big deal. And kind of, you know, just this sort of ragtag group of people. So he had this pretty young, amazing defensive stalwart in, in Bogut, right? Who's just an amazing rebounder and a great defender. And then... It was like this this anchor. Then he had this little water bug, the Iverson-like super speedy, right? Jennings as a rookie was all over the court, right? He played tons of minutes, actually hustled on defense. Then he had the quirkiest, quirkiest team, right? He had Ilya Sova doing his thing. You had, you know, Luke Richard, you know, um, Baamute, yeah, right. who were like, holy crap, second rounder who can defend. Even back then, he was defending LeBron. And I remember these battles against LeBron back then, like getting under LeBron's skin. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker. Like, we only lost by two points. Like, he didn't like that. LeBron went nine for 29. Hmm. You know, we'd lose, but we had had this, huh, wow, we got a little bit of kryptonite for LeBron. He can guard anybody. Well, and Barmute was only young then too. So, you, again, you could see what they were trying, what they were oh. building there potentially. Super energy, right? So this is the second round pick. Bogut was only twenty five. Um, one of um, Manu's countrymen, Carlos Delfino, yep. had a couple runs as a buck. That's just this, again, a really good wing defender, and he probably him and Bruce Bowen. Now that I think about it, open corner threes. You get Delfino on a break, he's going to drain that open corner three. So, you, and then they had these you know, the wily veterans, Kurt Thomas, Jerry Stackhouse. These sorts of guys, you just kind of had this 
interesting ragtag, very Milwaukee Bucks team, right? Just as kind of this, uh, you know, it sounds like a 40-win team. And then they made the trade. The trade, Des, right? I don't know who they gave up. But fat-ass John Salmons <laughs> came to Milwaukee and like, what? Oh, okay, whatever. We traded for this fat shooting guard. And John Salmons proceeded to deliver. This is where Fear of the Deer was in, basically invented. The last, like it was the last 30 games of the season. He traded at the deadline for, I don't know, whatever. Some Herb Cole-like trade, you know. Oh, great. And he signed a fat I'm guy. Right here. Hakeem Warwick and Joe Alexander. Who? Right, right. <laughs> or H. Warwick and J. <laughs> J. Alex, yeah. Great. For Salmons, who was in a contract year, it's like the J.J. Reddick trade before the J.J. Reddick trade happened, right? Yeah. So they go, but John Salmons proceeded to have the greatest 30 games of this fucker's life. And so you asked me what I remember, Daz. I remember in my house in Belmain, you're exactly right. I go, holy shit, they're showing Bucks games in Australia. What? I go, wait a second, they love Bokit. That's why they're doing it. Yeah. So I'm like, <coughs> um, I can't come into work today. <laughs> you know, we're playing the Cavs or something, right? You know, I'm skipping work to ask to watch them play. And the, it was one of those little Cinderella's, right, where everything worked. So you had water bug Jennings running all over the court, Bogut cleaning up everything setting perfect picks ursan right still master at drawing charges even at a young age crazy ursan and you know wiley delfino and super defender luke richard and it just went everything worked they went like 22 and 9 the last 30 games the last 31 games 21 and 9 it doesn't you know it wasn't exactly 25 and 5 they might as well have gone undefeated. That's how fun it was. And then fear of the deer started happening. They started climbing up the standings. And fucking John Sammons, man. Every big shot. I, I should probably go back and dig into crunch time stats for fear of the deer. Salmons. Salmons? Salmons, whatever. Salmons. He, Salmons hit everything. And so there was this, all this momentum. And then, whoosh. It was really late in the season. I don't know, 75th game. Yeah, right near the playoffs. uh, For the playoffs. Bogut goes up for a dunk, and I think it was actually against Phoenix. I thought it was Amari or something. Amari still the mark was, yeah. Yeah, it was Amari. And um, it wasn't a cheap play. It was on a break, you know. Oh, it was just one of those freak things, yeah. Freak things. And Bogut goes and hangs on the rim for some stupid reason and falls – he didn't get hurt. He just he fell down after he'd hung on the rim after a dunk, mm. and just and then it came down on the ground and dislocated his elbow and oh, and so the, it was it was gruesome. I saw it on replay. But that Bucks team, they're the they're the best defense in the league. I think they actually ended number two, but they had the single best defense in the NBA that year. And so you added the bravado and scoring of Jennings and Salmons, and um, you had this really really interesting team that nobody wanted to play they never turned the ball over an amazing defense 
They rebounded the hell out of the ball with Bogut and Delfino and Bute and Ilyasova and Kurt Thomas was a great rebounder. Um, so they just they kind of had all these critical stats. They could shoot the three, they could run, they could defend the heck out of the ball and rebound. You're like, you really have to play an A game to beat the Bucks. And hmm. so I remember everything about that and season. Then of course, well, Bogut was never the same after that. Uh, Salmon's got paid, and then put on another 10 kilos and ended up getting traded to Sacramento halfway through the next season. And then uh, Brandon Jennings blew out his knee and he was never the same player after that either. And welcome to being a Milwaukee Bucks fan. <laughs> yeah, you forgot the best part where, you know, we we're, we went to the playoffs against a really good Atlanta Hawks team, right? That was, a, you know, um, Mike Bibby and Al Horford. And that was a, a really – Joe Smith, number. Joe Johnson was right up. Joe Johnson in this prime, thing. Josh Smith yeah. in his prime. right? So it was a supremely athletic team, and they went up 2 nothing right away. Like, okay – Bogut's hurt and we can't compete. And then what happens? The Bucks rattle off three in a row. They win one. You know, won the game in the Bradley Center. Okay. 2-1. That's nice. Then it goes 2-2. Okay, motherfucker. Then we go to Atlanta and we win the game in Atlanta. And so you had this, holy shit, we went up 3-2. And they start to believe and go, oh, my God, can we actually do this on Bogut? I know you couldn't. <laughs> we got – Bombed in Game Six and Game Seven. I don't think the Bucks scored eighty scored points. Scored sixty nine in Game Six, seventy four in Game Seven. So. so I remember we didn't score eighty. Yeah. So yeah. thanks for that. So, and then Bogut, right? And he was a sixty five or so percent free throw shooter you know, before the injury and after the injury. Was he? That was where I really noticed it. It wasn't. You know, he injured his arm. It's not like he. You tore an ACL or anything. Was totally, totally different. His shot was broken. Yeah, he's, he fucked up his elbow. So that was kind of the beginning of the end, which then led to Monte Ellis coming, which led to my wanting to blow my brains out, which led to, but ultimately, I guess, led to um, the accelerated demise of of yeah. Herb Cole and, and selling the team. So there's a there's a great shot actually. If you go on another YouTube search to do, you've probably seen it. The the Andrew Bogut through throw in Milwaukee where he has all the high fives from the imaginary teammates because no one was coming up to him. You know how they do the through yeah. throw and then everyone gives him a high five? And he was just high fiving air. That was beautiful. That was right before he left. It, he, he said to himself it was just a at that stage, unfortunately, it was a, um, a bit of a basket case of a franchise. Uh, by the time he left, but they did have that moment of sunshine. I think that, that that's always the bogey yeah. I'd like to remember. I guess even more so than the the he bogey. He was because he you know the fan base had sort of we'd realize after a couple of years like oh god we missed we got the ping pong ball we should have taken Chris Paul. You felt it you know pretty quickly, and then he had that he had this kind of really breakout season. You're exactly right. You thought holy shit we can. Maybe he's actually a harder skill set to find than Chris Paul. It's kind of what we started to think, right? And then, yeah, it was just injuries just devastated it. And then he got, you know, to his to his defense, he got really frustrated with, um, we'll never know, I guess, behind the scenes, but he got frustrated with his medical care and with his rehab and how he was being, I guess, how he's being handled. And he was, he's always been a great teammate and was really good He'd bitten his tongue for a long time, but I guess he got pretty frustrated with how things were handled. So when he did get traded to Golden State, he let loose on 
on Milwaukee in, in a pretty bad way. So, you know, bridges bridges were burnt. Mm. But um, well, as is uh, the rules in basketball, there can't ever be more than five minutes of sunshine in Milwaukee. That pretty much stands to reason, Daz. Yeah, let's hope the sunshine's coming. In all seriousness, for the Bucks, it's, yeah. it's looking up. So let's end with our quiz. I know, Darren, you've got a couple of quiz questions for me. I usually flunk these those parts of the. Uh, well, I yeah, I know, seem to see get into the this week. you know slightly more nuanced or a little more difficult. But you got me thinking about. Um, we started talking about Memphis, and we've we've talked a bit about the Spurs, and you got me thinking back to when the. You know, the infamous, you know, 8-1 upset, mm. right? Which was, um, do you remember the year when the, the Grizzlies upset the Spurs in the um, in the first round? I yeah, think that was 20. That's exactly right. So the Grizz with the, the young and still baby fat Marcus Saul and a super fit, you know, as fit as he could be, Zach Randolph, upset the Spurs. I think it was four games to two. Yep. Um, and it, that was a grinded out series. Oh, those weren't blowouts, were they, Daz? It those was a great were series. Really great series. series. At the time, they call it the best first round series ever. But I think the Clippers, it, uh, a couple of years later, probably beat. Yeah, because you guys, you'd had three, you'd had three titles under your under your belts by that point, right? You'd won. Uh, we won four, so we had nine. Well, ninety nine. I mean, that core had one, had one oh three, five and seven. And at that stage, it was sort of Manu's team. Manu was our best player. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, at so that stage. so it was it was kind of this neat thing for the NBA. Like one of the you know one of the Giants was you know it wasn't a, a number one team that was somehow oh, just a you point know, flawed, on that too. Right? Yeah. Actually, yeah. I'll make a point on that. The first game of the series, Manu was injured, and he missed it. That's right. Pop, Pop was convinced that Manu missed that game because he didn't rest him enough through that regular season. So just hold that thought from what we were talking about before. It just That just occurred to me then. So no evidence to back that up, but that's just Pop's belief. So it's one of the reasons Pop since then has been actually a bit more aggressive in resting players through the regular season. But go on, sorry then. No, no, I mean, no evidence, no problem. That's okay. <laughs> that's, that's how we roll here, you know? I've declared myself an empiricist. You might as well just call yourself a fake news man. That's okay. <laughs> I'm offering alternative facts. Thank you. You know, a you know a lifelong pop apologist, but um, so but that so it was a great series. I remember as a just an NBA fan thinking it was every game was this was super competitive and intense and crunch time in every game felt like a hockey game, right? It was just yep. the last five minutes of every game was stressful and so rare does the underdog pull it out. But that, that, I guess that leads to my question, which is really, this is not, it's not an easy one, is there's only been five number eight seeds to ever beat a number one seed in the NBA since it's gone to the playoff format in 1982. Yep. And obviously the Grizz beat the Spurs. Can you name the other, any of the other four eights that beat ones? I know. Well, Denver beat Seattle. Yes. Uh, Philadelphia beat Chicago when Derek Rose blew out his knee. The Derek girls blew out his knee, so I'll go back to the Denver one. For Denver one was the amazing. That was Mahmoud Abdul Barouf and Dikembe Mutombo, and the upstart Denver Nuggets beating this, you know, the almost unbeatable Sean Kemp, um, young Gary Payton, mm. Seattle SuperSonics yep. in the crazy, crazy, crazy series. That was back game best of five, but best you're exactly five, right. Yes. And you're exactly right. The Sixers beat the the Bulls. Um, 
good memory, and that was more about Derrick Rose blowing his ACL. But exactly. there are two other ones. So Memphis and San Antonio, there are two more. One that I knew and one I would have never gotten. Mm. No, I think I'm going to blank on the others. Um, I've got a think... vague. Oh, actually, it wasn't uh, Golden State were an eight seed when they beat Dallas? Is that right? Nice. Good one. That's okay. it. Be- the we the famous. And I haven't fa- mentioned the yeah. We Believe uh, Warriors. That's uh, right. Back uh, when Baron Davis was, was yes. geez, he was kind of a rust. better one, uh, eight seed than you think. I think they won 50 games for the eight seed that year. So that was a, they were a good eight seed. That's right. Oh six, oh seven. the Warriors beat the Mavs mm. four games, four games of two. That's all I remember is the, the Baron Davis and um, Beedrins. You know, they had the thunder and lightning. That's yeah, right. Yeah. We believe that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's then, one more. This is going to be a stretch. Uh, can you give I'll, me give me the year? And I'll, I'll give you the year. It's, it's 98-99, which happened to be the uh, was that the lockout year? Hard, that's a lockout year. Yeah. Well, so they played 50 games. Were were the Knicks an eight seed? They were. So then it would have been the Knicks. So Knicks beat the Heat. Jeez, impressive. Go. I would. have... You got. I only got three. You got all five. Well done, mate. Well, you had to give me the year. I would not have got it other than the year. But as soon as you said the year, I do remember the Knicks because uh, Ewing, Ewing got injured and then he came right. back and then got injured again, um, which was why they were an eight too. But then they, I don't know when he got injured, if he got injured just before the playoffs or during it. And whether that was when the, the he was gimpy was for the he was gimpy for the playoffs. Hey, remember he came back and he was, you know, he was he was on his literally his last legs. He was thirty six yeah. years old that year, so he was, you know, his his knees were made of glass by that point. So, mm. but that was the Allen Houston, Larry Johnson, Latrell Sprewell, you know, Chris Childs, that that yeah. sort of team, and the connection to the Fear of the Deer Bucks. You know, Kurt, Kurt Thomas was on the Fear of the Deer Bucks. He was also on the. Uh, this Knicks team who was an eight seed who beat the, uh, you know, the top seeded Miami heat that year. So well done. This is still the only, the five, eight seeds to ever beat number one seeds. And I think you and I could both, um, I guess it's probably been said before, but I'm not sure if Denver can get past golden state or <laughs> the, the Bucks beat Cleveland in a in seven game series. I will, no. I will have, um, I won't just have monkeys. I'll have, you know, silverback gorillas fly out of I my think it's ass. It's going to be rare now that you've got the seven game series too, because it's always hard. Yeah. That, that little bit harder to get over that. Yeah. There's only three of them that have got the seven game. And the I think they were very Warriors. good. Yeah. I mean, that, that Warriors team, and obviously the Grizz were a very good team that year as well. And the Grizz yeah. actually tanked at the end of the season to get the Spurs match up because they knew they matched up well on the Spurs that year. They did, didn't um, so they? They probably should have been the seven seed. Um, and ended up in the eight spot, so um, that they were probably a better team than what they're, they're sitting represented as well. So, all right, good quiz. I think I did a little bit better there. We, we've just hit the two hour mark here, but I'll have a bit of editing to do tomorrow. Gee whiz, yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. We might even break up a two part. We'll see how we go. But anyway, it's been fun again, Darren. Thanks, pal. I'll um, talk to you. Uh, we'll, we'll go again on Monday and, and see what's happened. In yeah, let's see what happens. Anything That's more our... to upset us? We've All right, been no angry more tr- tonight, haven't we? Yeah, me too. No more triangle talk. I We've think been that's angry, it. Angry on harmony days, not good. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, everyone. We insulted. Yes, that's it. All right, Dad. See I'll you, talk to you Monday. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye.